So next is uh, the genotype 2-3 patients. Uh, depending on where you're located, these are 15 to 30% of your, your FC total population in the U.S. Uh, it's a little bit more in other places. If you were in Spain, it's a quite substantial part of the population, but uh, you just don't see as much of it here. His exam, he's a uh, uh, BMI of 29, so in the, uh, in the overweight, moving towards obese range. Um, but he appears well, he's anecteric, his abdomen uh, has a normal liver edge, there's no hepatosplenomegaly, and uh, he has no edema, no stigmata of chronic liver disease. His labs are shown on the right. Uh, his platelet counts 285, his creatinine is normal. Uh, AST is 57, AFT 51, um, albumin's 4.8, and INR is 1. His CD4 is great at 752. His HIV is indeed undetectable. Um, he does not have hep B, and he does have antibody, uh, which looks like he came from a natural infection.
let's see what the guidelines say. Um, this is from the ASLG IDSA guidelines, and uh, we are in the treatment naive, he was never treated uh, category, and you can see that uh, the treatment choices are shown. So uh, most of you were right in your treatment choices, and uh, those treatments are essentially the same that the patient was, was paying with their own microbiome experience as well with cirrhosis, but we don't think this patient is cirrhotic. So why is that? This is a change. This is not what we were doing before uh, earlier this year. Comes from the ASTRA 2 trial, Sophosphere, uh, HCV genotype 2. And uh, overall, you see uniformly uh, great results in these patients, ranging from 99 to 100%. And uh, that's why that answer is out there. It didn't matter if you experienced cirrhotic, not cirrhotic. What about the resistance variants? Um, well, obviously, if virtually everyone was cured, that didn't make a difference either, but it was looked at, and uh, resistance variants were indeed present in some patients, and S5A resistance variants, but uh, again, made no difference at all. The other option might be the use of Declatosphere, Sophosphere, here is uh, data looking at that, and uh, again, overall very good results uh, in these patients treated for uh, 24 weeks. This is a genotype 2. There weren't many patients in these studies, um, so that's a little bit of a problem, but we've been using the soft regimen for a while, though it's quite expensive to use. in co-infected patients. Again, not huge numbers, but uh, uh, genotype 2 overall did quite well. And Dave published those data, so uh, you should feel free to jump in and uh, if there's any comments or issues. Okay, so genotype 2. Pretty easy. Genotype 3, um, so let's see where we're at with genotype 3. We'll start with the current recommendations. This is for serotic and non, or non-serotic and serotic patients on the left and right. And uh, you again see Declatosphere, Sophosphere, uh, or Sophosphere, Bumphosphere in these patients. Biggest difference being in the cirrhotic uh, patients treated with sophdeclatosphere, there's a longer treatment duration of phosphorylated use of weight based retroviral therapies. Um, I will tell you that, that that data, well, we'll look at the data actually. So, this is from the Ally 3 study. All patients treated naive treatment experience genotype 3. And uh, again, 
optimal duration um, is a little bit unclear in these patients, uh, particularly those with advanced fibrosis, cirrhosis, but uh, uh, it didn't look like going from 12 weeks to 16 weeks made a huge difference. Um, and uh, that's part of why sort of defer to this longer and with or without rivavirin. In the absence of data, uh, and you've heard this already, I think a couple of times, the general rule is if you don't know what to do, or you're not sure where you're at, you have two big decisions. Treat longer if you can, and possibly add rivavirin if you can. So those are often the decisions that we're facing in these patients, is can we treat longer? Can we get drugs for longer? And surprisingly, uh, we've had experiences similar to those that David mentioned, where for reasons that are totally inexplainable, that, uh, that they'll give us 24 weeks of expensive drugs, but they won't give us Rivavir, which is a very cheap drug relative to the cost of those drugs. And they'll insist on it. Absolutely no Rivavir. We're not getting it. So, uh, uh, there's still a little bit of capriciousness and lack of thought in our system in terms of, uh, of how drugs are being utilized by, by the payers. And uh, we just have to somehow both fight it and put it into our practices. Um, this is uh, to off for 24 weeks. This is from a European experience, so not a randomized trial, but real world experience. Uh, you know, the issue with these is that, uh, that people have a choice. So the, the clinician taking care of the patient might already be biased towards, I think this patient is going to be more difficult, therefore I'm going to treat them longer and uh, when they treat them longer, they did indeed get better results compared to the 12-week trials. But because it's not a randomized trial, it leaves us with the question, is that definitely the answer, or is just we think it's the answer? And the beauty of the guidelines is that the we think it's an answer becomes part of the guidelines in the absence of other data. That, that you know, people sit around the table and argue about these things and say, yeah, I think I didn't know exactly what to do with the best data available, I would indeed treat those patients for 24 weeks. This is the Astro 3 data with the softball platysphere. Um, again, compared to the soft riba, which was a previous treatment, and you see very good results overall for the uh, treatment periods with 12 weeks. Cirrhotic and non-cirrhotic patients who are treatment naive um, and perhaps a hair of deprivant in the previous treatment patients. Okay, so what about those genotype two treatment failures? This is uh, this is again the current guidelines. What where we're at? You divide them into whether. What did they fail before? Did they fail PEG-based regimens? Or did they fail a cephosphate-based regimen? Because that was the previous approved treatment. So for the PEG interferon uh, ribavirin failures, you further subdivide into non-serotic and serotic 
this case, it doesn't matter because uh, the, the recommended therapy is sulfofatospirin for the 12 weeks. Um, and uh, the alternative is the sulfofatospirin regimen, uh, albeit with longer treatment in the surrounding patients. Uh, for the sulfosfumir peg interferon rival failures with or without cirrhosis, uh, the recommended is either the 24 weeks of sulfoclatosphere or again the 12 weeks of sulfoclatosphere, which if you can get it is the cheaper and obviously easier to take alternative. Um, it's funny, this morning Jen and I were talking about this and uh, Dave as well, and what is the role of teclatosphere? So we have had great trouble, unlike you here in California, uh, where it's apparently fairly quick adoption of softball patosphere. We've had a very difficult time getting uh, softball patosphere, but we have little trouble getting soft teclatosphere. So you go with what you have available. Genotype three treatment failures. Um, so again, divided the same ways, PEG versus SOP, with each of those, non-serotic versus serotic. Uh, and it looks pretty similar. It's uh, the SOP valve is 12 weeks of therapy, recommended to Balm. Uh, if you use SOP to Cladosphere, uh, probably with RIVA, the current guidelines say with RIVA in this case, uh, though the data, again, is still one of those judgments regimens coming. Um, so we have seen data from ABT-493 and ABT-530 combination for genotype 3. Um, and uh, it's hard to beat 100% results. Um, so uh, we're looking forward to the continued development of this. And uh, uh, I think we are in in the phase three trials now, and uh, we'll hopefully be seeing this drug over the next year, this combination. What about the Elvisphere or Zoprovir? Well, there was a study, uh, an arm of the C-SWIFT trial, the combination of Sophosphere, treated naive genotype three, treated eight to 12 weeks with and without cirrhosis. Um, and again, not huge numbers, but overall very good response rates, uh, again, not, not at this point reaching the level of a recommended or alternative regimen, but be aware that it's out there. So in summary, good treatment options are now currently available for non-serotic genotype 2 and 3s and serotic genotype 3s. The role of ribavirin in genotype 3 is still a little bit unclear and you're really worried about the patient, particularly the uh, prior non-responder serotic patient, um, it doesn't hurt to do it. There was the discussion before in genotype 1s about uh, 
what should the dose be, and in general, in a compensated serotonin patient, we should be thinking about the weight-based rapid environment dosing. Um, presence of RABS was associated with lower rates with some regimens, but not with all regimens, and uh, uh, we need to see probably more data on that going forward. So that's it for Genotype 2.3. Happy to take any questions. virus at four weeks of therapy, what do you do with that? And uh, there actually was just recently a, a publication that, that asked that question about extending therapy in those, and it uh, wasn't a big study. It did suggest that, that extension of therapy may be useful. That, the title of it was something like response, the paper was like response-guided therapy, not dead yet, and, uh, and it's an interesting concept. I don't know of any large-scale studies that are moving to prove that, but uh, I would say based on the little bit of data available, it might not be wrong to consider that. Though the truth is most patients with low-level detectable at four weeks are either not adherent or it doesn't matter. They're still going to clear in the predetermined treatment time. Okay. So next up is we're going to bring back uh, actually just a couple of uh, potpourri cases of some other things. probably to answer that. 
testing cap with advanced viruses, right? So what else would you guys like to see to assess um, his degree of competitive
increasing the waiting times for people who need calabaric kidneys. So there's actually, if we ask the transplant nephrologist, their answer is always do not treat this patient's hep C, no matter what their stage of disease, because we want to get a positive kidney. So I think that this one's a tough one. I would be leaning now in our region to not treating this patient. You certainly have more treatment options uh, if you wait until they have a transplant. We're kind of limited. If we did decide to treat this patient, let's say he was duly listed for a liver and a kidney, um, it would probably be in the best interest to treat the hep C, and maybe you could avoid the liver transplant. Or if the patient wasn't eligible for kidney transplant for some reason, there's reasons why you may want to treat the patient. And not only is it a conversation, obviously, with the transplant nephrologist, but a conversation with the patient, you know, about the risk and benefits. So I just like to put this out there before we started talking about kind of the pharmacology aspects of this, is that, you know, there's a lot more to consider than just the PK of urine screen Okay, so let's decide that we do want to treat this patient. Which regimen has the most safety and efficacy data in patients with rainbow <coughs> Thank you. 
This did include ribavirin, though. It was for 20 patients. 13 of them had genotype 1A, 7 had 1B. None of them were cirrhotic. And all of them started at a ribavirin dose of 200 milligrams. But um, I'll get back to that in a minute. Nine out of the 13 had anemia. So that is an anemia rate of 69%. I didn't show you the data, but in the results of their study, they still had some anemia. So this is definitely a risk, even in patients with renal impairment that aren't receiving ribavirin. It's something you have to monitor for. But it was at 24%. So it's a lot lower rate of uh, anemia than what they saw in this study. All nine patients that had anemia had ribavirin interruption, some as early as day two, and some as late as day 74. And those that discontinued, um, six of them stayed off, and three of them did resume. Four patients were on the EPO, but two were already on it. So by intention to treat analysis, 18 of the 20 were cured. There, were, um, there was a relapse in the genotype 1A group, uh, genotype. So this is also an option that, as you can see, ribavirin presents some tolerability issues in this population. For 1B, you could use this, um, but our patient had Okay, so the, the question then is, you know, what if this patient had genotype 2 or genotype 3 or had decompensated cirrhosis? Well, then things get a, a little bit better, right? So the concern over sofosbuvir is that there's a 451% increase in that 007 metabolite in patients with a creatinine clearance less than 30. And it's up at, you know, 1,200 to 2,000% um, higher for that 007 in patients who are on hemodialysis. So when you see concentrations as high, you get nervous um, with nucleosides. So there is some data with sofosbuvir in patients with renal impairment. There are a lot of case series. I'm not going to go through them all in the interest of time. I'm just going to point out some generalities. So the first attempt at using sofosbuvir in patients with renal impairment was with ribavirus. This was before we had combinations of DAAs. And we had a half dose of phosphorus, 200 milligrams a day, with a very low dose of ribavirin, 200 milligrams daily. Um, in 10 patients, they only had 40% SVR and a lot of tolerability issues. So I think it's clear some phosphorus ribavirin is not a good choice. A study out of France looked at three times a week some phosphorus with various DAAs um, in five patients, a very small uh, group of patients that got this particular dosing strategy but two out of five of them relapsed. So I think three times a week, sofosbuvir probably isn't uh, gonna work for us either. Paul Martin's group out of Miami published on half dose of sofosbuvir uh, given the full dose of semeclovir. So the strategy was either 200 milligrams of sofosbuvir a day, they just use a pill cutter to split the sofosbuvir, or they use sofosbuvir uh, full dose every other day. And they had an 88% SVR in this study, so I think we're getting to the SVR rates that we've come to, to um, expect with these therapies, but there were some toxicities, you know, high rate of anemia, um, fatigue, and then they had two patients that required hospitalization, one for encephalopathy and one for diarrhea. The HCV target trial, which just collects data at various um, academic and community sites, so it's kind of a real-world look at hep C treatment, has some data on renal impairment. It was mostly um, pre-sofibuvir, so the data is with soft semeclovir with and without ribavirin. Um, they used full dose of phosphobir, and that should be 23 subjects um, with and without ribavirin, and they had an 83% SVR rate, a lot of toxicity, high rates of anemia, cardiac AEs, and they saw a progressive deterioration in renal function in these patients. I will point out though, the hep C target patients are sick, and 
patients in this study were sick. 76% of them were decompensated cirrhotics, and half of them already had a transplant. So we're talking about a sick group of people here. So some generalities from that. Um, I think that it's clear that we need daily sofosbuvir, even in renally impaired patients, but I think the jury is still out on whether it has to be a full dose. So based on Paul Martin's data, I think 200 milligrams of sofosbuvir might be an option, but that's awfully hard to do when it's co-formulated with other pills. You can't have the lipidosphere dose or half the lipidosphere dose. Um, we also don't know if some of the toxicities we're seeing are actually due to the drug or just due to the toxicities that we would typically see in this patient population. And so we need some additional data to tease that out. Okay, questions? All right, I'll point out one more thing, just kind of interesting pharmacology-wise. Even drugs that are hepatically metabolized actually have increased exposures in patients with renal impairment. And that is um, hypothesized to be due to them having high levels of uremic toxins parathyroid hormones and more cytokines, something that's impairing the hepatic metabolism or drug transport. So that may be why you can get away without using ribavirin with risoprevir elvisvir is because the concentrations are higher, but it doesn't apply so much to the hemodialysis patients because the hemodialysis actually clears those toxins that would alter the metabolism. But it's just something to keep in mind that um, you, know, you may need to monitor for more of the concentration even in regular parent patients. Okay, we have a case next. Seven-year-old man with co-infection. His AST is 48. His AFT is 39. Uh, Phosphorus 43. Ileus 1.1. Platelets 129. He has no symptoms. His physical exam is normal. His CD4 is 325. Uh, and his HIV is well controlled. On the is found to have HCV genotype 1, no subtype available, high viral load. He comes in and asks if he could take the stuff on the HCV commercial. You would now do
Um, we got the ultrasound because I said we do that on all patients. And uh, no one chose that. <laughs> and we saw this. And it doesn't come with uh, the arrows you normally, but there's something. This is the liver. You can see it across here, down here. There's something there that looks different. So, uh-oh, your radiologist has just called you and said, I see something. Um, so now you can refer to the general surgeon for resection, refer to an interventional radiologist for a biopsy, refer to a transplant center, say, Okay, but I know he has hep C genotype 1, high viral load. I'm going to start treatment for that or order a biphasic CT scan. Go ahead and put it. And most of you want a biphasic CT scan. Uh, anyone want to comment why? What is it you're looking for? Size. Size. Okay. You do, you do get a size measurement on the ultrasound. Mm. Actually, it's usually not bad. Um, but you're right. That is the correct answer. You get a biphasic CT scan as the next step. Why don't we do the other things? For one, the surgeon, we, we don't just resect because we don't know what this is yet. We do not biopsy lesions suspicious for hepatocellular carcinoma because then up to 5% of cases you see track. So on my list of big mistakes people make in the management of liver disease, that's a top five one. Chest tubes and we talked about already, this is another big one, is uh, sending to the local radiologist and they stick a needle in it. And if they see the track, the patient is dead. Uh, refer to a transplant center. Uh, that is not a crazy thing if you aren't sure you can get a good interpretation of whatever needs to be done next. Starting DAAs, I'm glad no one chose that yet. And again, most of you, I think, chose the right thing. So if the biphasic CT is done, and it shows the lesion has characteristics of an hepatic hemangioma, the enhancement in all phases matches the blood pool. In comparison, HCCs exhibit a washout after the early phase. So another very important concept is it's not just CT, but a multi-phase CT. It's called different things in different centers. In my center, we call it biphasic CT, arterial phase, venous phase. In some centers, they call it a triphasic CT. It's, uh, it's arterial venous washout, but I think we look at washout vital incorporation too. Um, in some places, it's just called a multiphasic CT. This is not a contrast CT, the CT that when a patient goes to the emergency room, that uh, that's what they get. In a, in a standard contrast CT, 
They take a few pictures, the tech walks away, they have some coffee, they do an injection, they tell the patient they're gonna feel warm, they go back and drink some more coffee and talk about the weekend, and there's no imaging. And then, at some point, five, 10, 15 minutes later, they rescan. If you do that, you will miss most liver cancers. So, we also, after determining, so this is a hepatic hemangioma. Those are common. They're not, uh, they're not an issue. They would not prevent therapy. They usually are no clinical consequence. Sometimes they get really big and, and they could rupture an automobile accident. But, uh, but in general, we don't worry about hepatic hemangiomas. So we continue with our workout. Transit elastography is performed, and it comes out to 17.5 kilopascals uh, with an IQR over M of 26. You would now pick one of these, treat the patient with DAAs, obtain a liver biopsy, or obtain a fiber test. Calls to say his ankles are swollen and he has gained 15. 
pounds. Would you start furosemide, repeat the ultrasound, tell him to raise his legs when sitting and wait for approval of his HCV meds, or call for help at a transplant center? spironolactone and Lasix, do a diagnostic tap, contact a transplant center, some combination of those things, or get a TIPS, which is, we didn't talk a lot about TIPS, transjugular intrahepatic porosystemic shunt. Answer here is uh, is clearly uh, five. It's we, all of those things should be done. You start the base dose of contactonin Lasix. You do a diagnostic tap, try to understand what happened. Why does this patient now have ascites? Uh, and he's clearly decomposed. 
not would say that we are a transplant center, so we didn't contact anyone, but for you, most of you would contact a transplant center. The tips would be used in the setting of refractory psyches. So treatment refractory, not responding to uh, use of diuretics that have been maximized. What regimen would you use for HCC screening in this patient? Alpha fetoprotein every six months, and ultrasound yearly, alpha fetoprotein every six months, ultrasound every six months, ultrasound and alpha fetoprotein every six months, CT yearly, but would not surveil for HCC. Go ahead and answer. stage the liver disease. Child's pew, meld, no need to stage. When the patient looks ill enough, we refer to the transplant center. So most of you would use meld, which is very appropriate in this setting. And uh, but you're also going to use child's pew if you're still in the back of your mind thinking about treatment issues. This patient is, uh, is probably now a child's pew B. Do you think liver transplantation is an option for your HIV-infected patients with liver disease? survival, uh, 
many centers have stopped transplanting, those that were involved with the study, have stopped transplanting HIV-positive patients because centers are graded based upon average survival compared to a national standard of immunos, United Organizary Network. And, uh, and the rates of response in co-infected hep C patients was below that average, which gives a bad score to the center, which causes them to become a non-preferred provider for all transplants. So the decision of many centers is to not transplant HIV positives. This does show the data from the solid transplant study, uh, and the rates clearly are lower compared to mono-infected patients at three years post-transplant. Time to first rejection, surprisingly, is significantly increased. Just all through my life I see this. You have your theory, and then you have your clinical trial. Everyone said when we went into this that uh, patients with HIV won't reject because they have HIV or immunosuppressed. They reject more than others, not less than. So uh, it was a very interesting thing. These patients have to be treated aggressively with immunosuppressants. Okay, so the transplant center says they can't see the patient for one to two months. They recommend you consider HCV treatments, and now it's in partnership with them. Which treatment regimen would be the least desirable if you choose to treat? Softoclatosphere, Prod-R, Softoclatosphere, Alvisphere, Prozophilia. Go ahead and vote. was two, uh, but there are a lot of questions about four as well because of the lack of data as well as uh, an issue of the question of whether protease inhibitors in a decompensated patient are part of the problem in, uh, in leading to decompensation. Um, so decompensated patients are recommended to be treated with uh, uh, several different things. This is actually the older one. I didn't update this, but now it's a softoclat, softval, or uh, softprodivosphere. And uh, let's just, this is the big thing, that prod is contraindicated by an FDA warning concern, as I said, about the use of PIs in the setting of decompensated patients. So uh, at this point, we need more data. There are some limited data, like I think a 13-patient study in decompensated patients with albosphere uh, prosoplavir that does show that good results with good safety, but it's not a big enough set to uh, yield the kind of concerns that were raised with the use of the prod regimen. And this is an example of a regimen that, that seemed to work pretty well. This is the solo one trial, uh, soft uh, 
with a bladder-based therapy above ascending dose therapy with ribavirin decompensated patients. In general, unless you're working directly with a transplant center, you should not be doing this. Some of these patients just seem to have an accelerated rate of decompensation. They get very sick very, very quickly. So this is not for you to try unless you're working closely with a transplant center. So in summary, the recognition of liver disease at an early stage is uh, critical. Staging helps determine not only viral liver disease, but the liver disease management itself. Failure to recognize decompensated liver disease may be associated with decreased patient survival. A liver transplant is a viable option in decompensated disease and in patients with liver cancer that fall within certain size criteria. I didn't have time to show you those data, but uh, they're called the Milan criteria. If you exceed the Milan criteria, you, you are not transplantable because you are probably metastatic, and it doesn't matter then that you transplant the liver with the immunosuppression transplant. The, Cancer just goes crazy. So early recognition, early referral is very important. Um, and with that, we will end the session and say, go out and cure lots of hep C disease. Thank you.